everybody. How we doing? Good, good evening. Did you guys have a good day today? I like it. Same here. Where's my guy Jude? Jude. Oh, Jude. Hey, everyone down here, say hi to the balcony. What's up, balcony? Everyone say hello. The balcony needs some love. Um, well, I hope you guys had a good day. It's crazy. You guys are going home tomorrow morning. Are you ready to go home? Boo, I know. Well, hey, by just by a way of introduction, I wanted to maybe tell you something that I hope could be a resource to you if you're interested. When I was here a couple years ago, uh, it was during COVID, I started making just resources that I was starting teaching through the Bible in like podcast form. And so I wanted to tell you guys about it because a lot of people don't know necessarily where to start or to listen to anything. So I have a, a podcast resource ministry on YouTube and and podcast is called Dial In with Johnny Erdovanis. That's my name. Um, and so I've taught through a lot of the different books of the Bible or main themes or topics on there. A lot of the big questions that students will send in. I get about 100 questions a week that are sent in. And I try to make little videos to answer those questions. But I didn't really know how the Lord would use it back then. But now uh, people all over the world listen to that every single day. And I hope it would be a helpful resource to you uh, if you're just looking for something to maybe listen to explain different books of the Bible or maybe some of the big questions that you have. that You can find the link on, um, online or anything like that. I wanted to give you an update on my daughter. I showed you a picture of when she was real early on yesterday. But Kayla, do we have the video of Lily in her current glory? She's a baller. So that's Lily. Lily loves Stevie Wonder. Um, she turned 16 months old this week. Uh, likes mac and cheese. Hates uh, when I wipe her nose. Um, she's the best. Wanted to give you a little update from Lily. I miss her this weekend. Well, let me do this. Can I... Pray for us, and then we'll jump into the Word of God. Are you ready for that? Yeah, Jude, let's pray. God, we're so thankful for another evening, Lord. I, um, Lord, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian, and the problem is we just have two days. But Lord, I pray that tonight as we look to your Word, I pray that a few things would be clear, and here's my goal, and Lord, I ask that you would help me in that. Lord, that you are a God who is totally holy. You are a God who is totally just. It says that you cannot and will not tolerate sin. And yet, Lord, it says in the scripture so clearly that God is love. And the love of God is demonstrated clearly against the backdrop of his justice, of your justice, O oh God. And so, Lord, I pray that it would be clear tonight that, Lord, your love is available to people who desperately need it. Your love is not a suggestion. It's not something we can do without because without your love and without the reception of it, Lord, we are doomed. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have an accurate understanding of you. Would I neither emphasize one at the expense of the other, but, Lord, I pray that it would be clear from a biblical perspective, Lord, that you are a holy God, that you are a God that punishes sin, and yet, Lord, you abound in loving kindness uh, for sinners like me for sinners like the people in here, God, some who think they're beyond even the scope of your love. 
And so, Lord, I pray that tonight you would do a great work in the hearts of students, convict them of their sin, and convince them that the love of Jesus Christ is real. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so just I'm going to use, uh, jump to Ephesians for a moment, and then we're going to be in John 3 as well. So I'm going to look at Ephesians just initially, because I want to tell you where we're going tomorrow, and tell you, in order to get to where we're going tomorrow, we have to understand something that's happening in John 3. And just so you guys know, when I teach here, I'm working through the theme that's assigned, and this, the theme is recrafted, and so the goal is, what we're going to look at both this evening and tomorrow, is on how God remakes us. But in Ephesians chapter 4, picking up where we left off this morning in verse 21, it's going to say, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus... That, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, just pause there for a second. The Bible's going to talk a lot about renewal. And when Paul is saying this to the Ephesians church, he's talking to Christians. It's the Ephesian church that they've already given their life to the Lord. And he wants you to understand something. And this is why we have to jump to John 3. There's two types of renewal for the Christian. One is a positional renewal. A positional renewal means, and this is what we'll talk about this evening, that God has to make you new. He has to give you rebirth. That's what we say a Christian is born again. But not only is there positional renewal where we're made totally new, and that's 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, but there is progressive renewal. Positional, progressive. Progressive renewal means this, that once God saves us, he doesn't just leave us there. No, the mission of the Christian is to become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ until he meets him face to face. That's what we're going to talk about tomorrow, that element of progressive renewal. If you're a Christian and Jesus has saved your life, your number one objective is to be like him, to be like him. But only those who have been positionally renewed, which means that God, at a decisive moment, gives them a new heart, only those that have new hearts can go in and say, I want to become more and more like my Savior the right way. You're not earning your salvation, but because of what God has done, out of the gratitude that he's changed you and loved you, you say, God, my life is yours. Now, to understand this element of positional renewal, where God takes our hearts and remakes us, recrafts us, if you will, let's turn to John chapter 3. To one of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible, the one of the most, probably the most familiar words ever written in human history, right here. And I want to talk to you about this guy, Nicodemus, and Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus because it's in alignment with our theme this evening. Jesus is a masterful teacher. Now, it says at the beginning of John chapter 3, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus is probably the most religious, most, religious, most wealthy man in all of Israel. At the time Jesus is living in Israel, there are 6,000 Pharisees. 
6,000 Pharisees, but it says here that Jesus will refer to him as the teacher of Israel. It's a definitive article, not a teacher of Israel. You're not one of many. He's the guy, meaning that Nicodemus is likely the most popular, well-known, respected, scholastic teachers of the Bible in the known world. And yet he comes to Jesus, real story here, in the cloak of night. Why? Because he knows every single answer except for one. Will I go to heaven? Have you ever asked that question? Where will I spend eternity? Nicodemus is anxious because he knows the truth. He's grown up in the truth. He's memorized the truth. And yet in Matthew 23, it will say that many of these Pharisees, they're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they look really good, but on the inside, they're full of dead men's bones. He knows how to play the religious game. Hey, how you doing? Good, brother. God is great. Amen. Boom, boom, boom. But on the inside, he goes, I have no idea if I was going to die today where I would spend eternity. And he, then he says, and he watch this, he says, no one, verse 2, can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. The signs that Jesus performed, understand this as a historical reality. Maybe you're an atheist in the room. Here's what you need to understand. The signs that Jesus did, the miracles that he performed, are historically attested realities, and all of the world knew it. Nicodemus comes to him and says, no one can do these signs that you're doing. You're healing the blind, you're healing the leper, you're causing lame people to walk, you're turning water into wine. Everybody can see it, and no one can do this unless God is with him. And so he says, uh, tell, me, uh, tell me about God, and Jesus doesn't answer his question. He gets right to the heart of the matter. Because Jesus knows all things, and he knows what Nicodemus is really after. Nicodemus is after the answer to the question, how can I know I'm going to heaven? And here's what Jesus says. Verse 3, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, I'm Whenever you see the word unless in the Bible, you need to circle it, you need to highlight it, you need to underline it. You know why? Because the word un unless precludes a necessary condition. Now, if a doctor says, unless you take this medicine, you will surely die. Unless you put gas in the car, the car will not start. Unless you man up and ask her on a date, she will not. No, uh, no it, it precludes a necessary condition. So when Jesus says unless, we need to focus our attention and he's answering the question, how can I know I'm going to go to heaven? And he says, unless one is born again, he will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus is the most religious man in Israel. And he says, what? Verse four, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb. Then Jesus responds in verse five. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. All that is flesh, verse six, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What is Jesus saying? Jesus isn't saying this. He's not saying, hey, here's what you need to do, Nicodemus. You need to reorient your life. You need to get re-educated. You need to have a reprioritization of your life. No, he's saying, Nicodemus, you must be reborn. You need to be remade. To understand what Jesus is saying, you have to understand the Old Testament. 
Now, remember when I talked about this this morning, that it says that sin makes our hearts callous and hard? It says in Genesis 3 that we are now under a curse, right? We talked about that last night that, and this morning. That part of that curse is that our hearts are hardened towards God. And Jesus is saying you need to be born again. But here's what it says hundreds of years before Jesus showed up on the scene in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. It says this in chapter 36, 25. This is a prophecy of what's going to happen when Jesus comes. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. Now, question for you. Do you want your hearts clean from all of it, its uncleanliness? Well, how is that going to happen? God's going to say what he's going to do. Do you have a dirty heart? God says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Here's what God is saying. When the Messiah comes, that's Jesus, he's not going to take your dirty heart and just scrub it with a sponge. What Jesus needs to do when he comes is take a dead, callous, hardened heart. And he needs to do a profound miracle. And he needs to give you a new one altogether. So Jesus says, you need to be born, uh, all that is flesh is the flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then there's this element in the Old Testament as well where we need to be cleansed. We need a total cleansing from our sins. Now, the reality that you and I have hearts of stone mean what, means what? It means that we are spiritually dead. Now, I've, I, always, I love the movie The Princess Bride, right? And there's that part, and... I always like that scene, right, when they take Prince Wesley to Miracle Max, and they think he's dead, and Miracle Max says, no, your friend is not all dead. He's what? Mostly dead. There's a difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. And I think this is the way a lot of us view our spiritual condition, that we're kind of sinful, we need help, and that's where God comes, and he holds our hand, and he carries us along the finish line. But Jesus is saying, no, listen here. Your heart, apart from God, is all dead, all dead. And what the dead means, what the dead need is to be awakened. In verse 6, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. We just read that, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And he's saying this, when Adam sinned in the garden, it says in Romans 5, verse 12, you can write that down, that Adam's sin brought forth sin for all of mankind, which means that every single person is now born into a sinful world. It says in Jeremiah 13 that you, outside of God, you're excluded from the life of God. We looked at this this morning. Now, it would be like you trying to change your spots as a leopard, and Jeremiah is going to say, can an Ethiopian man change his skin? What's the answer? No. Can a leopard change his spots? No. And can a person with a hardened heart awaken themselves so that they can earn their way to God? And the answer is no. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, the most righteous man in the world, Nicodemus, I know you think you're religious, but no amount of memory verses, no amount of familial pedigree, meaning the family you came from, no amount of religious devotion, no amount of respect that people give you can earn your way to God. Do you know that? There is nothing you could ever do to earn your way to God. And the hardest people, the, hard, the hardest time understanding this is typically amongst the most religious people. 
They don't understand that even the best deeds of righteousness they've done, Isaiah 64 says, are filthy rags apart from God. There is no such thing as someone who is, a, who is born a Christian. I think that we even would maybe affirm that. But there's no such thing as someone who grew up Christian. Like just, I was always a Christian. Did you know that? Because what's a necessity for someone to be saved is that God has to do a miracle in their hearts. In Ephesians 2, it says this in our passage. You can turn there if you want to because I want you to see it with your eyes. In Ephesians 2, it says, and you were dead, verse 1, in your trespasses and sins. It says, and you were, what's that word? Dead. Understand this. This isn't my spin on the Bible. This is the Bible's teaching. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and in the mind, and were by nature, watch this, children of wrath. Now, people get uncomfortable when people talk about the wrath of God. But I want you to understand something about the Bible. Every single passage in the Bible, the most memorable ones at least, that talk about the love of God, the verse before they're typically talking about the wrath of God. Because what is the love of God? I want you to think with me. How do you know God loves you? Talk to me. What do you, what, can I get some answers? I, w- I want you to think with me. What do you think? Talk to me. What? The Bible, yeah, it's a declared reality. We'll talk about that. But how do you know God loves you? I want you to think. How do you know God loves you? Well, God's love for you, what do you got here? Yeah, we were made in his image. That's a great one. Yeah, you were made in his image. What else? Yeah, what do you got? We're alive right now, exactly. That's common grace. He causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous balcony. What do we got, little man? He loved the world. We'll look at that in a minute. Okay, now think with me. Everyone back to me for a second. The reason you know that God loves you is because of what he did for you. And what the Bible is going to show you over and over again, and I want to develop a theme for you just for a second. Ephesians 2, it says that you are by nature a a child of wrath meaning that you don't do so many bad things that eventually God goes, oh, I'm going to have to punish him. No, you have to have God reverse the verdict. That's what the Bible's going to teach you, is that there has to be something done in order that God might save you. Because it's not that you're made good and then you become bad and then God has to rescue you. It's that you are born bad, continue to be bad, and God has to redeem you and renew you. So watch this. It says, and I wanna, we'll look at this more. We are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great, anybody know? Love. Because of his great love. What an amazing reality. That God, because of his great love. In Romans, it's going to say this in 5.8. That God demonstrates his what? Love. But do you know what happens for the first three chapters of Romans? It's talking about how the wrath of God is being poured out. And you know how God's love is revealed? It says it's demonstrated as he endures something. So that's where we're going, okay? That's where we're going. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus, back to John 3, that you need to be born again. And he's saying, and you can't contribute anything to this salvation, meaning that there's nothing you're going to offer God in order that he might make you new. It's a total miracle of God. You contribute nothing other than the sin which made Jesus' death necessary. So how does this happen? Look with me. Let me read with you verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Pause there. Jesus is going to reference a story that you and I need to understand. If we're going to understand the most famous words in all of human history coming in verse 16, you need to understand what's happening in verse 14, right? He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What's this story Jesus is referring to? Everyone look at me for a second. You need to understand this. In Numbers 21, there's an account where the people that had been redeemed and rescued out of Egypt, they come into the wilderness and they begin complaining because they hate the food. They say, this food stinks. Why don't you take us back to Egypt? It was better when we were slaves in Egypt while, than being out here serving God. This food is terrible, so God punishes them. And it says in Numbers 21 that he sent fiery serpents amongst the people, and they bit the people, and many of them begin to die. And it says that the serpent's venom was like fire rushing through their veins, And it says that the people begin to recognize that they had sinned against Moses, but even more so, they had sinned against God. And so they run to Moses and they say, we have sinned. We're desperate for a deliverer. Please, please go and ask God that he might deliver us. And so what Moses does, he goes and talks to God and God says, okay, Moses, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna take a bronze serpent, make a little statue. You're gonna hang it up on a pole. And then you're gonna lift that pole up. And whoever looks to the serpent up on the pole, they'll be healed. Everyone else that does not look to the serpent and the one that's lifted up on the pole will die. That's the story. But Jesus is telling Nicodemus something here. He's saying, you remember that story about the serpent's venom that was rushing through their veins like fire? He looks at Nicodemus and the living and active word of God looks at you today and it says a more deadly poison runs through your veins. Do you understand that when, when eternity is on the line, Love always takes on the expression of urgency. Jesus says, don't you understand, Nicodemus? A deadly poison runs through your veins, not of a rattlesnake, not of an asp, but the deadly poison of sin. And every single person that bears the sting of this infection has a common denominator. They will die. They will die This toxic venom goes into the depths of your soul. You are born this way. And what you need is to be remade, renewed. You can't just have this venom extracted. You need to become an entirely new person. Jesus never hides the reality that if you don't come to him, it's not just that you don't experience life to the fullest. It's that you die In John 3.36, just look there for a second. I want you to see this from the words of Jesus because we're gonna look at his love in just a moment. But it says in John 3.36 that he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Look at verse 18 of John 3. He who believes in him is not judged He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed. Do you understand that? This is like people go, I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want my students to hear this. Listen, I definitely want you to hear this. Jesus says that he who does not believe has been judged already. 
No, wait, what do you mean? I thought one day we're gonna meet God face to face and we're gonna be judged. You will, but here's how this works. What, what the, the person in sin needs is to have God reverse the verdict because we're not becoming guilty, we are guilty. Do you understand that? It says here, this is the words of Jesus. So you, I wanna hear the words of Jesus, hear them now. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed. And so Jesus is looking at Nicodemus saying, you know those men and women that died in the wilderness floor, they refused to look to the one lifted on a pole. And they knew that death was their destiny. And God is saying, why would you refrain from coming to a savior? Now, the question is, if God hates sin so much, I want you to think with me, because the Bible is logical. It's full of, it's, it's clear. Now, if God is so holy and he hates sin, why are sinners not punished right now? Do you know, you know the reason? 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to come, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. Do you understand what that means about your God? The reason God delays pouring out his justice on sin is because he does not delight and pouring out his justice. It says he does not delight in the punishment of the wicked. You know what God delights in? Repentance. You know what he delights in? When one sinner repents, that's Luke 15, there's a party in heaven. Every single time one sinner comes to Jesus Christ, God is holy, he is just, and he will pour out his wrath on either the sinner or the substitute. That's the entire Old Testament. There's a sacrificial system so that every single boy and girl understands something. Sacrifices are offered every single day. And it's as they slaughter a lamb, they understand something. My sin will be paid for. And it'll either be paid for by an innocent substitute or by me. But God is saying to you clearly in his word, the reason you're alive today, you said, the re you said how do I know God loves you? Is because you're alive, right? That's an absolute fact because God is demonstrating his love every single minute you continue to take a breath because he is slow in bringing about his justice because he's giving you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to come to him in repentance. But here's what Jesus says to Nicodemus, and this is what he's gonna tell you. The next time sin is rushing you know, the next time something is going to be lifted up on a pole, it's not going to be a serpent. It's going to be the Son of God nailed to a tree by those he came to save. And it's whoever comes to him that will be saved. Whoever looks to him that will be saved. Looking meaning that I am placing my full dependence on the one there that is taking my place. I want you to understand the love of God so desperately. And I want you to understand it this way. In the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe you're new to the Christian faith and maybe you don't know the story, so I never want to just throw out passages that you don't know. I just maybe I'm referencing some of them for you. In the Garden, before Jesus was crucified, he says, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but 
yours be done. What's the cup Jesus is talking about? The cup is the full measure of the wrath of God. I, sometimes I'm always interested, you know, I, I've, been, I've heard mi- hundreds and hundreds of sermons on the cross of Jesus Christ. But do you understand that the most painful part of the cross was not just the nails. It's not just that Jesus exchanged a crown of glory for a crown of thorns. It's not that he exchanged robes of glory for garments that would be divided amongst those crucifying him. It's not just that he exchanged the faithful anthem of angel warriors to the fickle crowd shouting crucify him. The most painful part of the cross was that on the cross, God the Father looked at his one and only son as if he had committed every sin you had ever committed. Do you know that's what the cross of Christ Jesus was? As if he had looked at all the pornography, all of the sexual infidelity, all of the murder, all of the gossip, all of the violence. God the Father declared Jesus Christ legally guilty of all of that sin for all of those who would come to him and all of his hatred towards sin. Now, I want you to just pause real quick. If you found out God didn't care about sin, would you think he's a good God? If some, has anybody ever hurt you? Have you ever been abused? If you found out God didn't care about sin, would you think God was good? No, God is good and he hates sin. So on the cross of Jesus Christ, it's that God looked at Jesus as if he had lived all of our worst moments and all of our sin by nature, declared him guilty, and then poured out the full cup of his wrath on his one and only son. You will never understand God's love until you understand what Jesus did on the cross. It's not just that he died. People die for other people all of the time. It says that. One will scarcely die for another man. I mean, people do it. I mean, it's not like, it's not like, oh, there's, I mean, I know people that have died for other people. I went to, I went to high school with a guy that's dead. He died for his friend. People have died for other people. It's not just that Jesus died for you. Do you understand that? It's that he endured your punishment. He didn't just take a bullet for you. He wrapped his arms around you. And the punishment that you deserve, he bore in your stead as all of the lashes, all of the beatings, the eternal punishment. How could, how could Jesus and how could he receive the punishment for eternity in just those hours on the cross? Well, because he's the God man. He's an infinite person and he took an infinite amount of punishment for those who would come to him in faith. The lyrics of In Christ Alone, a great hymn, It says this in the second verse, in Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was, anybody know? Satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Now, Five years ago, there was a, a revolt against these lyrics and people started changing the lyrics and they wanted the different artists that recorded the song to change a line in here. They wanted to change it to this. Till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. 
So they wanted to change it till, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to change those lyrics to say, till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And the writers responded, and they said, I want them to have a magnified view of God's love. That is the goal. And if that's the goal, then they must know what Jesus did. Jesus on the cross bore all of that for you. All of it. Calvary will never pierce your heart until you grasp this. One writer said, it is only as I realize God's wrath against sin that I realize the full significance of his salvation from it. And so 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ Jesus died, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring us to God. I get asked a lot, why do so many people leave the church at 18? You know, statistically, 80% of you are going to leave the church after you graduate high school. So here's what's a little interesting. Like, I, I travel every week almost throughout the entire year. And I'm with different people, different students, different churches. And I get asked the question a lot. And you know one of the reasons I love Hume Lake is because it's so fun. And God made fun. And it's just, the, it's so awesome to be up here. But I think part of the reason that people leave is because while they were in high school or junior high, the ministries that they were a part of never wanted to say anything that would cause them to be uncomfortable. And so what happens is they never realize God's holiness, they never realize his justice, and so they've been told about the love of God their entire lives, but then they go, why do I even need God's love? He loves me no matter what I do. He doesn't care about sin. And so then they just dismiss God. Many people have never been told of Hebrews 10, 26, that if you go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's a terrifying expectation of judgment. The Bible says, don't you understand? This is a life or death matter. And those who love you will plead with your souls. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need the love of God. It's not something that is offered to people that are lonely. Karl Marx used to say that religion is the opiate of the people, meaning that the religious people, Marxism, you know, it's kind of got a new rise, socialism, it's all coming back. Karl Marx used to say that religion is made up by stupid people. It's stupid, lonely, ignorant people who make up some idea that God loves them so that they can endure poverty. Religion is for poor people and dumb people so that they can feel better about themselves. And so, yeah, take, take the love of God. If that, makes you get, you know, if that makes you endure another day at the factory, then good. No, but the Bible's saying, no, no, God's love is not just, not just an option for you to consider. It's needed. You need the love of God. Now, why would Jesus do it? And we've already answered it in part. The next verse, what is the motive that God would have? Why did Jesus come to die at all? Now understand this. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. We need to understand both of these verses. The reason Jesus Christ came 
is because of the profound love of God and his desire to make an avenue by which guilty, foolish, deceived sinners can have their sins paid for and be reconciled to God. And God himself knows there is nothing, nothing, nothing that you or you or you or you could ever do to earn your way to God. It says that we looked at in Ephesians 4, you have been excluded from the life of God. You are separated from God. And so what we need is a God-man. We need someone that represents God. And we need someone that comes and lives the life we can never live in order that he might be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute, the final lamb of God. Because all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were offered over and over and over and over again. Are they finished, Dad? How many more sacrifices? It's not finished, it's not finished, it's not finished. These are all imperfect lambs. So Jesus comes and John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the what? Sin of the world. How does Jesus take away sin? Well, he takes away sin by living a perfect life and then enduring on the cross God's wrath. And the question is, why would God do that for people that are born his enemies? That's what we just read. We're enemies of God. There's either two options. You're a child of God or an enemy of God. I don't know, Johnny. I don't know if I like the way that sounds. That's the way the Bible teaches. You're a child of God or an enemy of God. And Jesus comes and he dies for us It says, while we were yet sinners in Romans 5. Why? Because of his profound love for sinners. He's not a God who delights in exercising punishment. Sin must be paid for. And Jesus said, I will do it. I will bear the punishment. I will drink the full measure of the wrath of God. Let me drink it, Father. I love them too much to let them endure all of eternity in hell. So let me grant them a way of escape. Let me go live the perfect life. Let me die the death they can never die. And let me rise triumphantly over the grave. Do you ever doubt God loves you? You sing about it. But do you ever go, I don't know. In Ephesians 1, there was a verse I read a few years ago, I guess, that just changed a lot for me. In Ephesians 1, it says this, that in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and then it tells us that Jesus, before creation, now Jesus was there at the beginning, he created the whole world, it says in John 1, that before God ever said, let there be light, he knew that one day he'd be dying on a tree. And it says that he chose us in him. When it says that he chose us, it means that every single one of you that, have a, that would come to Jesus Christ, he knew your name before time began. And he knew that he would be dying for you. And if you've ever doubt the love of God, then look to, as Ian Murray used to say, the pulpit of Calvary, where God preached the strongest sermon of all time on his own love for sinners. It's a visible sermon. God's love in scripture is a declared reality, meaning he says it himself. God doesn't say, eh, let them debate about it. Maybe they can pontificate at coffee shops. I think God loves us based on boom, boom, boom. No, God says, I have loved you in Malachi. In Isaiah, he says, I have loved you. Jesus says in John 15, 12, I have loved you. In John 13, 34, I have loved you. God doesn't delight in you being unsure of his love for you. He's declared it every single step of the way. 
It says in Exodus, if you want to know the character of God, it says that he is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding. Abounding means I cannot shut this, this suitcase. It's too big. It's abounding with what? Loving kindness towards sinners. But God's love is declared, but not just as it said with words, it's demonstrated. Meaning that God's not just preaching sermons. It's not like if I told my wife I love her, but I never spent any time with her, never did anything. You know, so No, love has to be backed up by action. And so if you want to know the love of God, you must understand the cross of Jesus Christ. God's love is demonstrated there at the cross. It is a visible demonstration that he does not want you to go to hell. He does not delight in punishing sin. He delights in you saying, Jesus, be my savior Forgive my sin. Be my Lord. God's love is also eternal. In Jeremiah 31.3, it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. God's love for you did not begin with your love for him. He loves you with an everlasting love. God's love for you had no beginning it wasn't launched at a certain point in time. Understanding the eternality of God's love for you is so crucial to fathom because when you understand that God loved you from the beginning of time, it'll free you from the false idea that our love for God is the cause of his love for us. You did nothing for God to make him love you. And until you know that, his love will never be sweet. You'll never be able to sing, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me until you understand that his love is not only eternal, it's undeserved. You did nothing. You did nothing to curry the favor of God. He's not impressed by whatever you bring to him to deserve it. He, he looks at you like a child. God's love is also something that is immensely personal. It's experiential. Augustine used to say, God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. You know what that means? It means that God is a God of love, but he's not up there. You know, I have one daughter, but I grew up in a family of seven. I have five sisters and one brother. And sometimes I've heard people go, how was your experience growing up in a big family? I had a big family. You know, I feel like I never got the attention that I wanted from my parents. Um, no, I just never got like a, an attaboy for my brother, but never mind. Uh, we're moving on. Uh, just kidding. Now, God's, you know, I never got what I wanted from my parents, but here's what you need to understand about the love of God. God's love is not subdivided amongst every single person on earth. God is immense in his love and demonstrates his love to us individually and experientially. You know what the Holy Spirit does in our life? We sing about the Holy Spirit, but do you understand one of the chief functions of the Holy Spirit? It says in Romans 5, Write this down because it's a real place. I'm not just throwing out stuff. In Romans 5, it says that the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into your hearts where you know that this is not just some theological thing to be affirmed. It is a reality to be experienced so that when you sing, oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forever be my song forever. It, it, it's so wonderful. 
Because God's love is experiential, it's personal. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus didn't just die for the world. He died for you. On the cross of Jesus Christ, when he was dying for you, if you come to him, he knew you by name. He knew you by name. When we look at God's love, sometimes we think about it as just some macro, massive thing, and yet we fail to personalize it in our lives. Just regarding God's love as well, if you miss this about God, you miss God. God is not pieces of the pie, meaning he's not 15% holiness, 15% justice, 15% love. He is all of his attributes, all of the time, in full measure. Does that make sense? We can't look at God's character as he's 80% love and 10% justice. No, he's always holy. He's always just, and God is love. So not only is God's love a declared reality, it's demonstrated, it's undeserved, it's personal, but there is nothing, and this is for Christians. This is a promise to Christians. There is nothing you can ever do to separate you from the love of God. Romans 8 says, what will separate us from the love of God? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we shall be put to death all day long. We are considered to be sleep. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced. Now, Paul says he's absolutely convinced of something. I want you to be convinced of these things, so just listen with me. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love is immensely precious to me because I know that there is nothing I can do to separate myself from his love. But you need to understand something about God's love. There is a common element of God's love for the world. But this love is only extended towards those who come to him as savior. And Jesus says, you need a new heart. You need to be reborn. You need to be remade. Your heart right now is a heart of stone. It's a heart of, it's not a heart of flesh. It's a heart of guilty, callous sin. And you need to be remade. You need to receive the love of God into your hearts and he'll change everything about your life. And the question for us is, how does this happen in my life? Maybe your conscience is preaching a sermon to you right now. I need this. I need this. I need this. You know what the Bible says? That's your conscience. It's something God has given you. It's the Holy Spirit working on your heart saying, I need this. I need this. I need this. I need to be remade. I need to be renewed. I need to be reborn. How can this happen? How can I receive this precious gift how can Jesus' death on the cross be the punishment for my sin? And how can his resurrection be the proof that I will live with him forever? Well, the answer is in John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, what? Yeah. 
whoever believes. Faith is the sole instrument by which the sinner is transformed and remade and renewed. It says in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You don't need to spend the rest of your life trying to earn your way back to God. You need to believe in God. And when you, what it means to believe in God is not just to believe in a higher deity, but to believe that Jesus died for my sins. He was Jesus Christ. He was the Son of God. He rose from the dead. And I place my total faith in what he has done for me. I acknowledge my sin, and I want God to change my heart. I think the, the thing that's tough is I know that there are so many of you that need a new heart tonight. Do you know you need a new heart? Do you want God to remake you? Do you want him to cleanse you from all of your sin? He, he wants to remake you. And he wants to make you new because he loves you. And if you doubt his love, just picture the God-man hanging on the tree with you in mind, bearing the full weight of your sin. Would you pray with me? God, I just pray that even now, as heads are bowed, Lord, I I know that um, there are many here that potentially do not know you and they have a heart of stone. They need to be remade and renewed. They need the love of God. Lord, uh, you don't want to pour out your wrath on them. You will and you do. And God, both your wrath and your mercy demonstrate your glory. It says in Romans 9, but Lord, you don't delight in the punishment of the wicked, but you desire all to come to a saving faith in you. So even as your heads are bowed, if you know that you need a savior and you need Jesus Christ to make you new, would you look up at me for just a moment? Can I talk to you directly? Can I talk to you directly for a moment? What this means when you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, it means that you are, you are confessing your sin, you believe in Jesus as the Savior for your sin, and you're acknowledging that, that you are placing your faith on Jesus Christ. Now, looking at me or praying a prayer isn't what saves you. What saves you is a miracle of God. But if you know you need a new heart tonight, can I pray for you? Can I ask that God would do a profound miracle in your life? God, I just pray for the people that are looking at me and, Lord, that are at least in some way signifying that they need a a new heart from Jesus Christ. Praying a prayer does not save. Walking an aisle does not save. But what does save is faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, for those that want to place their faith in you, do a work in their life, even now. Convince them of their sin and convince them of the love of God pray this in your name. Amen. Now, if you were looking at me and you, you know you need a new heart tonight, in a moment I want to ask you to stand because what the Bible teaches is that the Christian faith is a public faith. We don't live our Christian lives in a closet. We demonstrate to the world, God has changed my life. So in a moment, if you gave your life to Jesus Christ tonight and at least want to let other people know that I need a new heart and I want to place my faith in Jesus Christ, would you stand with me on the count of three? One, two, three. Would you stand?
Can you stay standing for just a moment? What the Bible teaches is that those who have been in Christ, they're a new creation. All of your life from this point on, we'll talk about tomorrow, is lived to the glory of another master other than yourself. And when one sinner repents, it says that there is a party in heaven, a great celebration because God delights in the repentance of one sinner. So would you guys all stand with me? Can we celebrate what Christ has done tonight as we continue to sing?